I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Guys, you won't believe it. This is Dr. Santosh, your pediatric infectious disease doctor and researcher. We are now well into spring. And depending on if I get this episode out in time, after April Fool's, and if I didn't, hey, April Fool's! The next big holiday that usually comes up at least for me, is usually Easter. Um, are there any big holidays around this time in, in Hinduism, Santosh? Yeah, so we talk about springtime. It's the same type of festival where we're celebrating the new growth of life and crops and that kind of a thing. So we actually have uh, holy you can't have holy. That's our word. No. We make things holy. <laughs> no, no, this is... We do... <laughs> we do holy things, too, for reals. We we have a beautiful party where we throw color on each other. Everyone shows up in white clothing, and we throw color on each other. And it's this gorgeous celebration, colors in the air and all that kind of a thing. And so... Everyone gets a little soaked, a little dirty, and you celebrate that the crops are growing and that life will return soon. Wait a minute, wait a minute. So, Santosh, let me get this straight. Yeah. A bunch of people show up all in white and then mix with the colors and it makes them a little dirty? (laughs) (laughs) It shouldn't be I guess maybe it could be taken that. Yeah, we're taking it that way, aren't we? We're going, well, like, steering right into that direction. And that's, and that's what's holy for you, huh? 
yeah, that's, that's the holy part. So, despite all my teasing, listeners, uh, holy <laughs> is basically a wonderful springtime ritual where you all hit each other with bags of colored dirt, brightly yes. colored sand, and it's it's like a religious pillow fight. It is. It's a lot of fun. So it's Easter, we have Holy, we have regular Easter, we have Greek Easter. The difference between them, eh, if you're not Greek, probably doesn't matter to you. But there's, uh, you know, bunnies and chocolate, chocolate and bunnies, which... I uh, never understood how they lay those chocolate eggs. (laughs) You've got to watch more of the Cadbury commercials. They they lay it all out with the little uh, bunny that bucks like a chicken. Well, I mean, it looks good in principle, but one year, all I know is one year my dad caught me eating the little chocolate uh, pellets that the bunnies left behind, and he oh, seemed dear. really upset. Oh, the real bunnies. Oh, yes, that's uh, – I mean, to tell you the truth, Josh, from the standpoint of an infectious diseases doctor, you were probably fine. The The logic was sound, but of course – we laugh at all these antiquated, backwards traditions in the Bible. It couldn't possibly have anything to teach or impart in terms of modern-day lessons. Right. Nothing that we could have learned, or it, sure. even back in its own day, I'm sure it was just a bunch of nice allegories and parables, right? Right. Like, I mean, I, I don't know of any situations where, like, I need to figure out how many goats I need to give to you if I accidentally, you know, burn your field. So now that we've managed to, I think, successfully offend the greatest number of people in the yeah. shortest amount of time. Yeah, we got Hindus, we got Jews, uh, some Christians, and, and, and bunnies. <laughs> and rabbits, that all-important rabbit audience. Oh, yeah. Let's introduce today's topic, which is actually in honor of the various springtime religious holidays is medicine and the Bible, or we should say religious, religious affiliated medicine. Sure, yeah, yeah. This is we we started this off, I think, when you did your research as Bible medicine, but I think it's fair to talk about medicine from religious texts as a whole. Today's episode is going to be all about. Uh, medicine as described in holy texts. So not pseudoscience, but understood practice at the time and where it has been carried forward through to today. So in numerous instances, to start with the Bible, it contains medical information that in many cases will predate our actual discoveries of the related principles. The medical instructions given by Moses to the Israelites some 3,500 years ago in some ways are superior to the practices of some cultures and are direct ancestors of common practices we use today. Right. And some of them exceed standards even up to as recently as 100 years ago, which is disappointing at the least. So let's talk about what a few of these are. You know, one of the most basic ideas that we all have in medicine. In fact, so basic, we call it the universal health precautions to prevent disease transmission. So Santosh, you're our infectious disease doc and researcher. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) What are the universal precautions? The universal precautions start uh, with hand washing. And I always, always, always start with hand washing. 
because that more than anything else will prevent the transmission of disease from person to person. Going from hand washing, we talk about what to touch and what not to touch when you are in the patient's room. Don't touch your face and then somebody else's face. Don't share utensils across. Or if your nose is running, if you're sneezing, if you're coughing, you know, stay out of rooms where you could make someone very, very ill. And then we've got some modern inventions like gloves and gowns and masks and, and these kind of things. So these are the precautions starting from the basic, which are the universal hand washing, all the way to very specific personal protective equipment or PPE that stops the transmission of disease from person to person. So how are things like sanitation and infection covered in the Bible? Interestingly, universal is another great, you know, it's it's still applicable. So the Israelites were instructed to wash themselves and their clothes in running water, specifically, uh, not rather than still. If they had a bodily discharge, if they came in contact with another person's discharge, if they had touched a dead human or animal carcass, they were instructed to wash any uncovered vessels in the vicinity of a dead body, and if a dead carcass of anything touched a vessel, then that vessel had to be destroyed. Items recovered during war, and we all know war is a huge place of disease on the battlefield, had to be purified. So anything recovered from war had to be purified through fire or running water or as we like to call it today, autoclave and scrubbing in. There you go. <laughs> yeah. um, this was, these were the first autoclaves. And an autoclave, for those of you who are un- uninitiated, is basically a giant oven which applies both pressure and heat so that you can scrub clean everything in there. It's a beautiful tool. I'm going to give you an example of where I pulled this out of. So... And I'll give you a few references. So for those of you who are interested in the associated Bible passages where what we're talking about is mentioned, you can look it up. Uh, This is from Numbers 19 verses 3 to 22. I'm not usually reading this book for anything, ever. (laughs) So He's being very, very honest here, people. So bear with me. Directly from Numbers. You shall give it to Eleazar the priest that he may take it outside of camp, uh, the animal, and it be slaughtered before him. Then once the offering has been burned, the priest shall wash his clothes, he shall bathe in water, and he shall then come into the camp. He'll be unclean until evening. Whoever burns the clothes themselves shall wash their clothes in water, bathe in water, and be unclean until evening. Then a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the water of of the heifer and store them outside the camp in a clean place and they shall be kept for the congregation for the water of purification then it goes on to whosoever touches the body of anyone who has died and does not purify himself uh, defiles the lord and that person shall be cut off from israel he shall be unclean because the water of purification was not sprinkled on him so basically if you touch dead bodies and you don't bathe and wash the bacteria off yourself without having concept of what bacteria are you're considered unclean. Uh, this is the law when a man dies in a tent. All who come into tent and all who are in the tent shall be unclean seven days. Uh, this is, is very similar in some ways to our isolation procedures, where you have to glove and gown in special gear before entering patient rooms and then leave and remove that gear so you don't carry around the bacteria or what would have been the contamination in those days. 
Uh, whoever in the open field touches one who is slain by sword or who has died or the bone of a man or a grave shall be unclean seven days. Again, we talk about battlefield injuries and where you find these uh, the most common sources of infection is in soil, near graves, in damp earth, which could be wet from blood, or bodily fluids. So all of these things are really laid out surprisingly straightforward by any interpretation you care to make of them. Yeah, and uh, I think it's so wonderful to compare what the... Bible will say about ritual cleansing, and a lot of the time it's looked at as, oh, you know, this was done for maybe a religious purpose or a ritualistic purpose, whereas the truth is actually that it had a very practical reason to keep, you know, the area clean, to keep sanitation around. And so it's it's really beautiful to to see how it's all laid out very carefully in a step-by-step manner this is how you would write down in a medical manual how to scrub into a surgery or how to gown up to go into a room where there's an immunocompromised patient or how to prepare food or any products that you would bring into a room, for instance, for a person who's having a bone marrow transplant. So there's really no difference in how those type of rituals are laid out versus what's laid out in like a medical manual now. And Josh, I'll tell you from my personal experience, reading rituals, quote-unquote rituals from the Vedas, right, which is the Mm -hmm. Hindu books, we have a lot of the same types of things where when you wake up in the morning, you do a special type of bath where you actually are supposed to collect water from the river and then come a certain distance away from the river and then pour the water over you. And this makes a lot of sense if you think about all the stuff that you are collecting on your body or insects, ticks, and, and, and your soil you know, that's that's on you, that you actually wash away from the river so the runoff doesn't go downstream and cause an infection in the village downstream. You know, it's looked at as a religious thing now in terms of, you know, worshiping the sun or cleansing yourself before you do your morning prayers. But back then it was really practical. And, you know, I find that in many cases as I was doing my research, you know, common sense plus time equals tradition. That's it. That's all it is. And it, after a little while, we tend to forget where the original common sense part of it came from and when it was relevant. So for that particular large group of things we, we just talked about uh, for universal health precautions, that's covered biblically. And, you know, again, please give us corrections because I am... I'm out of my element a little bit, is Numbers 19, 3 to 22, Leviticus 11, 1 through 47, mm-hmm. uh, and Deuteronomy 23, 12. Um, hopefully that's got meaning to some of you. <laughs> yeah, let's move we're... on. <laughs> go ahead, go ahead, Josh. Sorry. No, no, please, after you. No, no, no. So, you know, we're talking about you know, really classical things that we think about when we say Judaism, you know, and how to clean your food, how to clean your house, 
you know, all these kind of things ultimately were to prevent disease, you know, to stop getting sick because, and, and we, we forget about this, but it wasn't too long ago that people were sick all the time. <laughs> you know, you, you got sick from eating, you got sick from bad water, you got sick from stuff in the air. So it wasn't too long ago that being sick was a natural part of life. Yeah, and you know, certainly it's it's been commonly accepted knowledge, if not heavily researched, that a lot of the original halal and kosher dietary laws were to prevent eating of animals who are likely to carry parasites, uh, because goats and cows are goats and cattle are much less likely to pick up certain kinds of diseases than pigs or fish which right. by and large tend to fall under the forbidden list. Um, yeah. Same thing with intoxicants, things. So again, you know, you take what is felt to be common sense at the time when people notice, oh, if I eat whatever the Old Testament equivalent of a hot dog was, I get <laughs> sick. But if I stick to steak and eggs, I stay healthy. So let's talk about how do you handle infectious diseases. All of the things in Leviticus and Numbers really go into how to properly handle infectious disease. So the instructions to Moses included things like quarantine to prevent the spread of leprosy and other diseases that are nothing short of remarkable. So to paraphrase, infected persons were instructed to isolate themselves outside of the camp until they had healed, and they were every day to shave and wash thoroughly. So again, you want to make sure any bugs that may be on you or any filth that you may have collected for whatever reason is washed off of you. Any priests that gave care to these people were instructed to change their clothes and wash thoroughly after inspecting any plague victims. Uh, it should be noted that the Israelites were the only culture to practice quarantine at all until the 1600s. But when medical advances finally demonstrated the importance of sanitation and isolation, really started in Victorian times. So they knew what quarantine was. They knew that people had to be kept away. But for example, the, plat the Black Plague of the 14th century, the one that we all know and picture as like people just erupting in these giant, awful, dark pimples that take over their body or whatever movie version Hollywood has shown you, <laughs> that plague wasn't really broken uh, from spreading all around Europe until the church in Vienna began encouraging the public to start following guidelines as set forth in the Bible for quarantine. Yeah, and, you know, you don't really think about ancient cultures isolating themselves or thinking about isolation or how disease was transmitted, of course, because they didn't have a conception of what germs were or things like that. But just have the simple mindfulness. It's, it's pretty awesome if you think about it. Just to say, hey, if we have something which seems to move from person to person, I don't care what, he, what you want to call it, but it just moves from around from person to person. And then you say, well, what if we, instead of taking it, you know, just letting these people walk about willy-nilly, <laughs> they actually stayed in one spot. And that was just a really 
kind of simple, elegant idea. And this was the beginning of the thoughts of quarantine. And we still use this to this day when we have communicable diseases, just because we have a conception of how diseases, infectious diseases specifically, are transmitted either through the air, coughing, sneezing, or by contact. That doesn't mean that the practice is any less relevant. You know, it's very easy for us to start off and say, oh, well, of course, bathe, don't touch the sick, change your clothes. Right. So let's, you know what, then let's kick it up a notch. You know, let's start looking for things that are a bit more specific. If we're going to make the claim that at least parts of religious texts really were ahead of the time, even by modern medical standards, let's look at something a little closer to home. Uh, How about antiseptics? Santosh, you're again, you're infectious disease. You're going to want to find ways to treat. So if you're creating something that's going to be an ethical, spiritual, medical guide for untold years, you're probably going to want to include some kind of recipe for what, aspirin or something to treat infections? Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the very least, if if I was living in ancient times, I would know that well, I wouldn't have the term infection yet, but I'd, I'd know sickness. I'd know the signs that something was off. So I'd want something to probably attack fever because that is something that I can envision. In Numbers 19, verse 18, uh, and I got to tell you, this Numbers book came up a lot. This <laughs> seems to be the one that had the most sort of medical advice. A clean person shall take hyssop, uh, which is a kind of oil and or plant, dip it in the water, sprinkle it on the tent, on all the vessels, on the persons who were there, or on the one who touched a bone, the slain, the dead, or a grave. So basically, it's being told to use this as an antiseptic, you know, the very first antiseptic. Uh, and hyssop oil, so this plant mixed in this plant macerated and mixed with water uh, was charged by God to Moses to be used as a purifying agent. Studies have shown that hyssop has about roughly 50% antifungal, antibacterial agents scattered throughout it. Now, in a concentration that is truly going to purify as is laid out, you know, probably not. But (laughs) there there are very easily provable medicinal properties and herb lore was the the order of the day again back in ancient times sure sure i can definitely see that happening recently i think did a beautiful uh, little journal club where we included the uh what was it josh it was the mead that came out of the book of vikings is that right yes the viking mead the viking mead which when when the researchers actually assembled it and put it together they found that it made for a wonderful antiseptic for a very specific applications and i think in this case it was it was wound care so you know science scientific endeavor is nothing more than testing things over and over, putting forth a hypothesis, and then testing things 
over and over until you have a working set of rules that will consistently uh, or a cause and an effect. So, you know, there weren't perfect solutions and they probably didn't even know really how it worked, but they came up to be, you know, good solutions for the time and what resources that you had available. You're making the, the bold claim that the Bible and other religious texts of the day really served as the first examples of scientific journals, collecting human observations and knowledge, and then dispersing it in a way that easily understandable by the mass population. That's, that's really all it is. You know, you're, you've investigated things uh, with as much rigor as you possibly could, you know, putting some some good knowledge together and you've come up with a solution to a problem you know it's it's a beautiful thing so we talked about the first antiseptic but i feel like that's still not enough like i i really want to give you some good evidence that there are some pretty fascinating things i found during my research into this so let's let's jump to one that is i want to say arbitrarily specific Okay. For many centuries, biblical scholars of all faiths have been perplexed by God's law of circumcision, yeah. which required. You know, there's a lot of questions that come up with circumcision, yeah. and a lot of and a lot of controversy over it. Now, it's something that Santosh and I both had to perform on babies during our medical rotations and residencies. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's something which we're familiar and. Even as something that's performed as a medical professional, it just it seems a little bizarre, you know. So why, why do we do this, and what requires the procedure to be performed on the eighth day after birth? And that's as specified in Genesis seventeen, verse twelve, twenty-one, verse fourteen, Leviticus twelve, and Luke two twenty-one. Some of these are sentences long. Some of these are like entire pages uh, why the eighth day right that that just seems like you could pick any the the world was created in seven days why not do it on the seventh day let's keep all the numbers on the same page absolutely yeah why not interestingly within the last couple years i believe in around 2012 medical researchers discovered that two of the main blood clotting factors in our bodies vitamin k and prothrombin reached their highest levels in in life is a bit of a stretch you know it was it was a very it was a very enthusiastically written study but reached right, their right. highest documented levels at about about 110% of what they normally are on the 8th day after birth meaning your ability to clot and not bleed out from having this ritual performed is highest on the day that the Bible recommends that you get it performed. So these blood clotting agents really facilitate rapid healing. They reduce the chance of infection because if you can quickly clot and form a scab, you're not going to have an open wound. Infections won't be able to get in. And most obstetricians will agree that you know somewhere around the 7th to 8th day of life is the ideal time if circumcisions are going to be performed. And ones that are done earlier... And I don't know why you want to do it. You know, wh- who are these people who are in such a rush? Yeah. <laughs> That's absolutely true. You've just yeah. been born. 
You know, yeah. let me hold on to you cut the umbilical cord already. Let me keep yeah. something of yeah. myself for just a little longer. Yeah. Uh, they were but, eager beavers. <laughs> But any circumcision done earlier than eight days very often will require a vitamin K supplemental injection. We had all kinds of things that were ready to hurt babies before we came into the somewhat modern era. And by modern era, I'd even say like the 1900s. We're talking about germ theory. We're talking about understanding how clotting works. You know, it's a, that's a great one to think about. There was so much ready to kill someone when you were a little baby. And one of the worst things really was the ability for your blood, like your lifeblood just to just shoot out of you, gone. <laughs> no, my essence! Yeah, 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 absolutely. We don't clot well as babies, man. The world is against you when you're a little baby. I would, if you were to ask me before I began looking into this, oh, you know, what do you think the Bible has to say about when to circumcise? I'm like, I don't know, probably something. Bible has a lot of opinions. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But they knew they, you know, probably just after time and time again, that if there was some point in time that people learned that if you circumcise, that baby boys and boys later on would get less, you know, problems with their penis. And at that time, it would be infection. So, I, I mean, I feel like that gives us a good grounding in the old testament yes but you know the new Testament has some things too but i i'm actually going to take it now from the opposite angle so we've spent half the show talking about things that we have only started to explain now that the bible has been on top of for you know eons but let's flip that coin and look at some things that you know, the Bible was unable to explain, and modern medicine may have figured out. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, let's let's get into some of these. When you hear about supernatural religious type miracles or sure. things, what are some of the what are some of the classic ones that your mind conjures? You've got things appearing in things. Jesus on toast which I hear is delicious. Marian oil, uh, that's another one. So that actually has to do with some pretty cool psychological phenomenon where we actually, as human beings, love to put faces on things. But I think you're talking about specifically like biblical stuff. You're talking about uh, crying, uh, crying statues. Well, yeah, I mean, that that one happens to call out to me because, as our listeners know from our Halloween episodes, I love scary movies. And every yeah. good, every every religious horror movie worth its salt is going to have something with, like, a statue bleeding out the eyes. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Don't even try and sell me a demonic possession story unless you are just pumping buckets of blood out of inorganic material. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> That's fine. I mean, it doesn't have to be eyes. It could be walls. It could be concrete. Yeah. It could be, I don't know, a, a roll of polenta. Something needs to bleed in order for it to lead. Yeah. Okay. So. Uh, I like that. I like that a lot. 
So, but yeah, let's talk about blood crying statues. Now, I I will not rule out that some of them could be genuinely religious based or just very very sad concrete. Yeah. <laughs> but sure. <laughs> but a lot of them can actually be explained by a very simple ubiquitous meaning ever present bacteria. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you know, I don't know if this is a bacteria. I know it's a bacteria you're familiar with, Santosh, but I didn't know to what extent you were aware of the unique properties of the bacteria known as Serratia marcescens. Yeah, Serratia marcescens is uh, it's a water bug. It's a it's a gram-negative rod that likes to live in water. It can give us a bad gastroenteritis. So one of the unique aspects of this of this serratia bacterium is in addition to living in water and forming slime molds it actually produces a pigment a red pigment called prodigiosin and these bacteria first kind of attracted scientific attention in early modern times you know around the 1800s you know you know i was going to bring it back there favorite absolute at favorite. some point yeah 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 absolutely um, just the because I time. love that time period. It's not always restricted to London, guys. No, that's true. Uh, so uh, a scientist in the 1800s known as Bartolomeo Bizio mm. decided to get busy figuring out why some of these statues were bleeding tears or why his polenta in his kitchen was doing its best impersonation of blood. And, you know, imagine you put a knife into what is essentially a a cookie dough sized tube of cornmeal and blood comes out. I'd be pretty freaked out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's that's that shouldn't happen like that. People would scream, toss the cursed food away and go running to their nearest priest for confession. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Whenever anything is bleeding which does not contain blood. In 1819 in a little town in Italy, there was an outbreak of diabolically cursed polenta, and I encourage you to look it up because it's a fun story to read. It is. It's, it's a brilliant story. A gentleman named Bartolomeo Bizio, a young pharmacist, believed that a microorganism was responsible, some kind of bug, and he looked at it under the microscope because they had invented them then. Yep. <laughs> Thank and... you, uh, Lee Hook. And he found a bacteria that was happily chowing down on the polenta and cranking out a red pigment, which he originally thought was a fungus. So he named it Serratia in honor of Italian physicist Serafino Serrati and Marsesens because of the pigment's tendency to fade or decay rapidly, meaning uh, these red pigment that the bacteria were producing were the equivalent of its bowel movements. It's kind of like pumping out that little, you know, reddish fart lasts a few moments, more than a few moments, but lasts a short time and then decays. Right. So let's yeah. fast forward to the, unless you would. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'd like to comment on, on the Italian job. No, 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 <laughs> not at all, not at all. So we found the source of our uh, the blood, really. So if you get moisture, like dew or collections of water on statues, mm-hmm. and these bacteria can get into that water very easily, and their natural byproduct when making energy is a short-lasting reddish pigment. Now, even if you don't clean anything, natural water collection will erode or wash away these deposits of bacteria, especially if they're very small pockets, such as might be, I don't know, tear-shaped or tear-sized, which explains why these things are very short-lasting. Right, and you can imagine where you would have a little niche where these bacteria could grow, like the, you know, when you carve an eye and you make the eyelids, right? So that's a perfect spot for water to collect and for you know the, just the right amount of moisture to be sitting there so bacteria can grow. So let's fast forward to the middle of the 20th century, when in the early 1950s, the U.S. government thought it'd be a good idea to use serratia as a bioweapon, uh, or at least in an experiment, to see how bioweapons might disperse. This was known as Operation Sea Spray. Uh, what you are all going to start to learn a little bit more at home listeners is one of my other great historical loves besides the Victorian era is nautical history and Operation Sea Spray burst a series of balloons filled with this bacteria serratia over San Francisco Bay. Serratia was specifically chosen again for that same red pigment which makes all the balloons filled with them easily traceable so you could see if Say, for example, a nuclear weapon detonated near a coastal U.S. city, how the fallout would likely disperse along the currents. Yeah, it's a great Uh, way to check that out. So the supposedly innocuous bacterium, which as far as everyone knew just made statues cry and polenta bleed, was generously sprinkled over the San Francisco Bay and subsequently linked to several respiratory infections and at least one death. (laughs) This is a great example of how we, as human beings at the time, with the knowledge that we had, thought that we were better than nature. <laughs> we're not. We, we're never better than nature. It also tends to be, in our modern-day world, one of the most common causes, or at least one of the top ten, of all hospital-acquired respiratory neonatal and surgical infections and that's because it's a bacteria that is very hardy and likes to live in moist environments Uh, even contact lenses it's one of the top three causes of ocular keratitis usually caused by poorly cleaned uh, lens cases 
So there you go. You know, why is it make a red pigment? Does that have some kind of physiologic purpose? Is it merely a coincidence? Uh, nobody really knows. But <laughs> I thought it was very interesting. So now let's move on to our next. So we've talked about bleeding statues and also the idea of communion, wafer, communion wafers and the entire concept of transubstantiation, that you are eating the true body of Christ without risking any of the, uh, shall we say, lesser known side effects of cannibalism. Sure. <laughs> sure. I think that's a good way to put it. That's, but that's a separate issue. Um, only worth mentioning because in, uh, in the conversion of several cannibalistic tribes around the world, missionaries were often the most successful in convincing them to stop because they would say, no, don't eat the bodies of your enemies, eat the body of Christ. And the natives would look and usually say something to the effect of, Christ must be a very tiny enemy. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's very understandable. You know, you have a cannibalistic tribe. And they're like, yeah, I'll eat the body of so. No, that's a cracker, man. What are you doing? So, but the next one I want to bring up is actually one that's been talked about in another podcast and by a pretty well-known name, but I think is worth mentioning. Um, let's look at some of these other medical maladies through history and maybe see if we can explain these giants and mystical creatures and happenings through a bit of a different lens. Uh, of course, David and Goliath is probably the best known story, and it's been covered before, I believe, by Malcolm Gladwell. Now, are yeah, you familiar I, with this, Santosh? Yeah, it's this is a, a TED Talk, guys, and if you guys are familiar with TED, uh, I'm almost certain you are if you're one of our audience members, because that means that you love knowledge as much as we do. Um, so this TED Talk was uh, from his, uh, I think one of his books, right? Um, he was specifically focusing on uh, his book where he was talking about why underdogs aren't really underdogs, essentially. And he gives a great story of why it is that we shouldn't think of Goliath as truly a big monstrous form, but rather someone who was actually sick at the time. Yeah. So some of the things that he covers, and, you know, I certainly encourage you to watch his TED Talk because it's worth seeing just for its own, but he talks about Goliath's symptoms or his description of a giant size and the fact that he needs somebody to lead him out onto the battlefield and he taunts David saying, you know, he's brought sticks when David's only carrying a single staff. A single staff. And, uh, yeah, also that he uh, he was brought by an attendant, I remember. Yeah. So if you look at all these through a medical filter, it really begins to look as though Goliath suffers from a very specific kind of disease known as acromegaly, which is often caused by an overproduction of growth hormone from a pituitary tumor. Now, a lot of these effects would be caused by that in addition to making somebody nearsighted because that tumor, the pituitary, is right behind your eyes. So if you have a big old tumor growing there, it's going to affect your vision. <laughs> yeah, and uh, just a, a little bit of awesome anatomy that I love is that the optic nerves go from the back of your eye and then they actually crisscross, guys. It's, there's, there's a cross called a chiasm 
where the optic tracts in your brain just make a little X and the right eye feeds into the left side of the back of your brain called the occipital lobe and the left eye feeds information to the right side and so right where it crosses is where that pituitary stalk is and so that compresses that chiasm and that can create double vision yeah so again you can find out a lot more about that told much more eloquently than us through malcolm gladwell's ted talk but that wasn't going to be enough for me i figured there has to be more than one source right that's oh, yeah, what science absolutely. and medicine are about. We look yeah. for multiple sources. So I went digging into the free PubMed archives, which is a search of all kind of the journals and studies ongoing. You, it's, it's like Google specifically for researchers. It's a fantastic resource. I personally wish that all of the papers were free, but that's his topic for another day. Yeah, yeah. Well, <laughs> there's a great... There's a great study uh, from the Ulster Medical Journal in 2014, and of course, it focuses on gigantism, Ulster being in Ireland, Ireland having a long association, uh, mythological tradition of giants. In fact, even at the northern end, there's a section, a very famous tourist site known as the Giant Steps, uh, that are these natural rock formations. Mm -hmm. So... The Ulster Medical Journal published a paper on hereditary gigantism, the biblical giant Goliath and his brothers. So they come up with a different approach. So rather than saying it was a growth hormone tumor, they're suggesting that he had a whole family tree of autosomal dominant inheritance with a pituitary disorder. And they speculate on it because he it mentions, apparently, that he has a relative with six digits who is also a giant. And they, they really go in-depth as to the different giants. And they talk about Og, king of Bashan, who slept in a bed of iron nine cubits long, um, who was that's one of the last of, survivors. That's, that's a lot, a of, lot cubits. of cubits. <laughs> I always have that same reaction because my only other reaction, honest to God, is what the hell is a cubit? It is, <laughs> it is the distance from your elbow to your fingertips. Yeah. Oh, okay. Thank you. Thank you. There you go. Don't say I never taught you anything. You taught but, me so much, Josh. But Goliath is, of course, the most well-known giant in the Bible who's was described as the champion of the camp of the Philistines whose height was six cubits and a span. And apparently from Samuel and Chronicles, uh, you can draw Goliath's pedigree. So a literal interpretation of the verses suggests that both Goliath's brother and his three sons were also giants. The name of his third son does not appear in the Bible, so these researchers named him Exodactylus, as it was said he had on every hand six fingers and on every foot six toes, which right, is suggestive right. of a hereditary autosomal dominant pituitary gene for everyone in the family to be extra special tall. Right. Um, and then again, the fact that he was killed when a stone hit his forehead, if you knock the pituitary and you have pituitary gland dysfunction, like a tumor or a disorder in the blood flow to that area, one good blow in that sensitive area and you're going down. It's not a tumor. I mean, in this case, it was a tumor. 
It was a tumor. <laughs> Maybe it's a tumor. Uh, so interestingly, the book of Samuel refers to five stones that David selected for his sling very carefully. And further reading of the surrounding passages and lending even more evidence to Malcolm Gladwell's theory shows that David's relatives were all, all involved in the deaths of every other giant in Goliath's family. Whoa. So Ish, Ishbinab, Goliath's son, is killed by David's nephew Abishai. Uh, a few other giants are killed by you know other descendants of David, but David's family is apparently a bunch of jerks when it comes to giants. <laughs> I can see that. I can see that. Um, so again, it's it's a very interesting study. The paper is available on PubMed, and you know worth worth a read. Uh, but let's move on to another one. In fact, we could talk about a whole range of different medical disorders that are suggested in the Bible. And there is, of course, a paper on that from the Academy, the Indian Academy of Neurology in 2010, who went through a very, very long paper that covered all the different biblical figures. So they, of course, talked about David and Goliath. We can look at Isaac, who in the Bible... Had, had gone blind and was trying to tell the difference between Jacob and Esau. Well, if you look at Isaac as a diabetic, which causes both peripheral neuropathy, or loss of sensation, can cause blindness, can cause weakness, yep. um, you know, yeah, then Isaac may not have been able to tell the difference between human and goat skin if he was a poorly controlled diabetic. Yeah, yeah. I think that's a, a beautiful example of how you can actually examine the historical documents and if the stories hold up you know have them match right up with uh, something that we know about in this day and age yeah so a few of the other ideas that lend support to the idea that isaac could have been the first documented diabetic is that isaac and his father abraham looked alike even though abraham was far older than him so diabetes okay. can lead to premature aging mm-hmm. um, isaac needed a constant source of water genesis 26 shows that his servants were constantly digging wells wherever they moved to now again everybody needs water but yeah. they they went out of their way to say that isaac was truly dependent and of course one of the symptoms that we use to diagnose diabetes is polydipsia or constant drinking mm-hmm. yeah yeah and that it just makes a wonderful amount of sense that you know the, isaac would be a uh, diabetic at this point And, of course, we've talked in the past about how demonic possession can be confused or conflated with epilepsy and a number of other, and seizures can look like just speaking in tongues and diseases. So there's a lot of different biblical aspects. But, you know, we've given a lot of room to both Old and New Testament, Jewish and Catholic traditions. I feel like we should at least touch on one aspect from the other major world religion. Aside okay. from Hinduism, of course, Santosh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right, all right. And we should talk about something from the Quran. Yeah, and please. Islam, I because think... now, there is a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, so the Quran is, I think, especially interesting because we were coming into 
kind of a really golden age of investigation, like scientific investigation, at the time when you know the the Quran was being compiled, and not long after, you know, we talk about the golden age of Islam. So it was a great time. I thought that it was very interesting, especially in the writing of the Quran, because of course we see a lot of, shall we say, the the anti-vaxxer movement coming from a place of deeply held religious beliefs these days. Right. So I wondered, you know, what is the rationale for this in the religious text that they're always going back? You know, I don't want my children vaccinated because of religious beliefs. Well, in the Quran, it, it I'm going to mispronounce this. Okay. Uh, from the uh, Mishkat al-Masabi, volume 3, page 947, in the Quran, when God's messenger was asked whether believers should make use of medical treatment, he replied, Yes, servants of God, make use of medical treatment, for God has not made a disease without appointing a remedy for it, with the exception of one disease, namely old age. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's old age is a mother, man. <laughs> I mean, that's that is the politest, most formal way of saying: Should we use medicine? Yeah, duh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, why? Why wouldn't you? It's there. <laughs> literally, yeah, duh. Yeah, I think that's the. Uh, there's no uh, better translation than yeah, duh. <laughs> again, we've already demonstrated that a lot of practices prescribed in the Bible have medical applications and uses today. I wondered if any in the Quran were similar, and I did manage to find one fascinating study through a PubMed search about the movements of Islamic prayer. The Journal of Physical Therapy and Science it goes into the idea that the specific ritual way that Muslim people are supposed to pray, the practice known as Salat, Okay. And if I mispronounce that, I'm sorry. We we're so that's sorry. Probably the best, yes. <laughs> that's probably the best you're getting out of me. It showed that people, healthy subjects practicing traditional Islamic prayers would show statistically significantly better dynamic balance than non-practicing healthy subjects, improved strength and physiological function, and they did it by you know, saying, okay, well, we think that because you're constantly getting up, down, bending forward, sitting back up, standing up, and doing this multiple times a day, that's basically physical therapy five times daily. Right. And, you know, they, they looked at this study in a, in a randomized way, analyzing one group of subjects who regularly practiced this Salat prayer and another group of non-practicing subjects who were probably their kids. <laughs> Just, well, just a guess. You'd, That's well, you'd, I am... you'd want them to be age-matched controls, but that's not a bad way to think about it. Um, and, of course, they this study did reference how similar types of things have been done with the therapeutic significance of movement in practices like yoga and tai chi, how it not only improves balance and coordination, but reinforces your neural connections. It improves your cardiac and lung function because it is aerobic exercise. You're not just, sure. you know, staying in one place, letting all your blood pool. You're in a constant state of movement. So even in people are like, well, I don't like to jog. Well, that's great. But if you're hopping up and down five times a day to speak to God, you're moving. Yeah. You're getting your muscle on. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, we have a morning 
uh, kind of wake me up celebration. Or you go go prayer. Yeah, oh yeah. <laughs> we we have the the sun salutation or the Surya Namaskara in Hindu tradition, where the movements are remarkably similar. You reach down, you touch your toes, you come back up, you kneel, you bow down fully, so you prostrate prostrate yourself, uh, prostrate. You prostrate yourself down so that you you know you you touch your forehead to the ground while you kneel. Um, there's a little bit more backbendy in some of the iterations that are from Hindu literature, but honestly, it's the same type of prayer. And, you know, we were saying good morning to the sun. They were saying good morning to Allah and because it's five times a day. Um, and, and we do actually repeat this type of prayer three times a day. It's called the Sandhya Vandanam. So you're, you stand up, you're kneeling down, you're squatting, and it's really cool to see that these traditions just crossed cultures. And, you know, these were uh, saints, right? These were um, sages. These were prayer-type people and knowledge-type people. These weren't the warriors, you know what I'm saying? These weren't the guys who were going out and getting a workout by chopping people's heads off. So, in fact, if they didn't do this type of a stretching or workout on a regular basis, their lives would be rather sedentary. So this was really their equivalent of, uh, you know, calisthenics. And yeah, it's interesting yes, yeah. how similar these are just right across where all these civilizations would mingle right across India, Persia, Iran, Iraq, and the, the, so the Arabian just from just from the study, and again, you know, I'm not going to go into specifically what Salat is because I'm frankly not qualified to talk about it. I encourage you to look it up or ask your nearest friendly Muslim. Um, maybe yeah. they can <laughs> explain it to you. Absolutely. So Salat has special characteristics in that, and this is quoted right from the study, it is a short duration, mild to moderate, physiological, physical, and brain activity. This isn't to say nothing of it, of its provided spiritual and emotional comfort as well as physical conditioning. Scientific evidence supports the notion that even moderate intensity activities such as prayer when performed daily can have long-term health benefits on heart, lungs, and balance. It can be performed in groups or individually without any equipment. Thus, a person in a rehabilitation program can practice the activity in their room with ease and comfort, even from a wheelchair or a bed. This activity is convenient for all kinds of patients, including children, elderly, physically handicapped for strengthening their muscles as well as their mind. Now, regardless of what your personal religious beliefs are, that is everything you could want in a general health regime. Yeah, absolutely. And the fact that it's done, you know, several times a day, it's practiced. And I actually want to address a few of these because I think it's really important. So physical, of course, we have. So it's a light calisthenic activity. You start standing, you kneel, you squat, you bow. Um, but the mental part of it that they're talking about is you're coordinating each of these movements with a prayer. So you do have to engage your memory and you have to engage your language skills in order to remember the proper kind of either incantation or prayer to say at each position. So you kind of jumpstart your mind when you, you know, when you're repeating this. And uh, that's how that this type of prayer 
is giving activity both to the body and the mind. And, you know, for people who are curious, because, you know, you do kneel and you do stand up, right? Well, people who wrote the Quran and, and passed on these traditions were kind of mindful that as you got older, you'd have to, you know, do these things maybe from a sitting position or you couldn't squat. So tradition have actually adapted these prayers to come from a sitting position or a kneeling position or a wheelchair type of position. And Josh, I've got to say my favorite adaptation in the modern sense with all these prayers is actually a technological one. Um, I, I had gone to visit a patient of mine who was a Muslim and they'd come over to take care of their kid who needed heart repair. And, you know, he was starting his prayer, so he, we interrupted, but he said, oh, come in, come in. But interestingly, he had his phone with him, and the phone, you know, it, it didn't have the verses on it. And I said, oh, that's, oh you, you're reading your Quran from your phone. I actually have my, my religious text on there. And he says, no, 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 this one uses my iPhone compass to show me which way Mecca is. <laughs> so... <laughs> You know, so you you do have to engage your mind a little bit, you know, to figure out the, the direction of Mecca. But nowadays, you know, even if you're having a little bit of trouble with that, you know, I want to face my religious site in the proper direction in order to start my prayers. We've got accommodations for that, too. <laughs> That's pretty neat. It is. So cool. that, that wraps up this episode on biblical medicine. Yeah. And, of course... It wouldn't be a proper travel medicine episode if we didn't have just the tip, but I think we're going to have a little bit of a religiously influenced just the tip as well. Uh, Santosh, you brought to my attention a journal article uh, that described a pretty unique travel-associated disease. Yes, yes, yes. This was on, I believe, Science Alert, uh, but it was it was via... Believe it or not, Josh, the Japanese consulate. And this is a syndrome called Paris Syndrome. Uh, there is an ICD-10 code for that, I'm sure of it. And <laughs> the idea of this, but Paris Syndrome is really specific to, uh, you know, they, they said to the Japanese culture, but it, other cultures that kind of believe in... Um, placing the customer first or being very service oriented and kind of humble if you if anyone's ever been to paris it's a beautiful city it's gorgeous but it's a big cosmopolitan city it's like new york or los angeles and just like in all those places you can get your share of rudeness you know <laughs> and you can get your share of hey you know tourist get out of my way or you know, if you're unfamiliar with the uh, the tipping policies or the restaurant policies or the language, you can get people kind of pissed off at you, really ticked off. And so there were people who were going to Paris who would be expecting this romantic, beautiful idea of, you know, very casually sitting in a cafe, smoking a cigarette and, you know, love is in the air and birds are flitting around. You've got a coffee in your hand and everyone's so sweet and kind and romantic. And then you'd get hit with, ah, you don't speak French. What's going on? You don't know how to tip. What the hell? Get out of the way. Move, you know, and they would be so shell shocked that 
the reality didn't meet their expectation that they would actually go into the state of depression. And this was Paris syndrome. And this is, of course, uh, the polar opposite of things like Jerusalem syndrome or Florence syndrome, where people are felt to be so struck and overwhelmed with the beauty or history of the city that they instantly are overcome and convert, thinking that they instantly become religious and people who are atheists or walking into just any side of Florence sets their heart literally a flutter. Yeah, yeah, and it can happen in other uh, religious-associated sites like Lourdes, where it's said that, you know, if you drink the water there, you cast off your crutches and you can walk again. And uh, that's a great place to go, by the way. You can actually see a wall of crutches if you go there from all the people who could suddenly miraculously walk again after drinking the water at Lourdes. Yeah, so that's that's one of them. And I just thought it was very interesting that Paris syndrome is Japanese people get to Paris and go, oh, really? That's That's it? Yeah, <laughs> they do. They get sad, and you know, you say, "Oh, is this really a recognized syndrome? What's going on? All this silliness." Well, the truth of the matter is, when it comes to psychiatric or psychological disorders, the real thing that you're looking for is not, you know, like a chemical change per se, like when we were talking about diabetes, but you're talking about a shift from the norm that is disabling to the person or group of people. And this certainly happens to the degree such that, Josh, believe it or not, the Japanese consulate in Paris, uh, in France, I should say, set up a hotline for their Japanese nationals to call and so they could give some counseling over the phone to these poor souls. Um, and it, it sounds very, very funny when you talk about it. But Well, in order to maybe help combat some of this, uh, shall we say, Paris syndrome. Yeah. Um, and I don't think strictly from the Japanese, but uh, to combat... No, no, I think they were, they, they were just the ones, I think the, the population that had yeah. taken it the most seriously, exactly. Um, well, Paris has now created a series of public garden urinals to turn pee into fertilizer and stop people from apparently publicly urinating with abandon. <laughs> And yeah, this this turned into a thing because you have people from all over Asia, Europe coming to visit, and in a and lot of places, peeing on walls. Well, <laughs> well, a lot of places it's it's prohibited. It's not considered to be uh, a good thing, or as the Paris would say, very gauche. But in in other civilizations, you know, wherever you gotta pee, you pee. Yeah, I have a history of interactions with, uh, shall we say, uniformed authorities who would disagree. <laughs> so uh, in cities the world over, of course, men and women who urinate al fresco are a scourge of urban life. But Paris has a new weapon against what the French call le pipi sauvage, or wild peeing. You're lying to me that that's what it's called. Look it up. I dare you. <laughs> All right. Wikipedia challenge to our listeners. It is a sleek and eco-friendly public toilet that you walk up, urinate in. It's a little box with dirt and flowers that not only will hide the smell of urine, but help to grow plants that will make the city streets smell even better. And by setting up urinals all over the city to publicly make free use of, the incidence of random other walls 
being used has yeah. decreased dramatically. So the first two of these toilets were installed recently on France's state-owned national railway, so people hopping off the train wouldn't have to walk all the way into the station. <laughs> you got to make it convenient for the people, Josh. The, you know, Jardin des Tuileries or Fontainebleau or one of those beautiful historical gardens that were set up by Napoleon or Louis the Fourteenth. you can pee on history and be part of uh, the future of that garden. And when else will you be encouraged to publicly urinate? Really, <laughs> that, that should be reason enough. <laughs> and, uh, Josh, I think we should uh, let people know that even though those urinals are there, uh, there is still a somewhat of a chance that you could get caught for public urination or exposure <laughs> if... Uh, yeah, it's if, not a blanket statement to walk around Donald ducking it. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, you, you keep your pants on for now. We here at Travel Medicine do not endorse public nudity outside of designated areas in very specific parts of the world. <laughs> I can't believe that that's got to be like one of our disclaimers, but sure. I'm just imagining an, like a tourist going over. But Dr. Josh and Dr. Santosh said I could say. <laughs> and All then, right, yeah. folks. Well, that that wraps up the episode. Happy Spring Festival of your choice and beliefs. And until next time, as always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings, and we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me, <laughs> with the help with a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories thank you very much and until next time as always happy travels bye guys Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 